In the name of God who creates, redeems, and sanctifies. Amen. Please sit. I want to begin by telling you this morning that yesterday, as soon as I saw the news, I reached out to Cantor Harriet Dunkerley, who is the teacher and spiritual leader at Temple B'nai Haim, our neighbors in Georgetown, and I assured her of my and our care and goodwill for her and for her community, and said that if there's anything that I or we can do to support them, to stand next to them as neighbor and ally, that we are here to do that. Unfortunately, that's a note that I've had to send far too many times recently. Not just because of this horrible incident of violence and terrorism in Israel over the last few days, but also because of the many, many incidents of violence and hatred and anti-Semitism that happen in our own country and in our own communities every day. If you're not familiar with some of the reporting on this, the Anti-Defamation League reported earlier in the year that anti-Semitic incidents had increased 35% from 21 to 22, and their expectation is for a, quote, intensification moving into 2023. And while I am sincere in my words in those notes to Cantor Harriet and to TBC and to the people in my own life and communities who are Jewish, who are experiencing this hatred and trauma and fear as a body, as a people, I grieve deeply the need to keep sending these notes. This morning, the text, and I remind you we follow a three-year lectionary, I did not choose them, our sacred text this morning, some of which we share with our Jewish siblings, the text offers up an important remembering for this moment. Should someone ever try to tell you that religion is irrelevant, that our history doesn't matter, that religion can be completely separated from politics, that these texts aren't alive and that they don't speak, that God has nothing to do with it, that God has nothing to say about politics and that Jesus was not interested. Here is a place, one of many, that you can point to and have a live disagreement. The intersection this morning should remind us all that God is very much alive and very much grieving the loss of life on both sides. God is very much alive this morning and grieving our capacity for violence and destruction all over the world. God is very much alive this morning, and the fact that we ended up with these texts should tell us that God has something very clear to say to us today. Now, as we begin, I want to note that I am about to say the name Israel quite a few times. And I want to flag that for you, because what I am talking about is the people of Israel, not the nation state. I will be pointing, as the text is pointing, to the body of people that God has loved across time. That body of people is and has been often conflated with the presence of the nation state of Israel after World War II. And some of our Jewish neighbors might identify these two things, the body and the nation state, as the same thing. Others of our Jewish neighbors would not. It is not my place to decide which is which. Instead, this morning, I call your attention to the fact that when I say the name Israel this morning, I am talking about the people of God, the people that God has loved across time, the people who find their identity in this covenant with God. 
You will have noticed, I'm sure, the obvious connections between the text we heard from Isaiah and what Jesus is doing in the gospel. In both texts, there is a dispute between God and the Jewish people, and in both texts, that dispute plays out in the image of a vineyard. What you can't see, because the reading from Isaiah stops short, is that the backdrop of that reading as well is the same land conflict that we heard about in Matthew from a few weeks ago, which is surely still in the back of Matthew's head this morning, where the occupiers of Israel have displaced landowners, farmers, vintners, and are creating these huge estates. And so the backdrop to both of these passages in ancient Palestine is economic injustice, displacement, dispossession, oppression, loss of home, loss of security, loss of wealth, and in some ways, loss of identity. In both texts, God's people are waiting for God to act, to set them free, to restore their fortunes. In both texts, they are waiting for restoration and renewal. There's something else that both of these texts have in common too, and I want you to know this piece of the sermon I wrote on Tuesday before any of this happened. These two texts are among a collection of texts that have been used in many places, often by conservative and evangelical Christians, and throughout time by Christians all over the spectrum to incite violence and teach bigotry and anti-Semitism. I won't repeat anything unnecessarily this morning, but I will say specifically that these two texts lay the foundation for Christians in particular who believe that we have somehow replaced Israel, that God no longer favors them, but us. Now, surely, this is not the only problem on the landscape this morning. The violence that we've seen over many generations is complicated. And I certainly can't sum it up in one sermon. We certainly couldn't even begin to, to dig into it in one morning. But there is one piece of it that I can deal with this morning, and that is the piece that the text has offered up. So that's what we're going to do. We begin by taking a quick walk through history together. Very, very quick, so hold on. And think back, if you can, to your Sunday school and to some of the conversations that we've had on Sunday mornings in Bible studies and gospel dives. You might remember that much of Hebrew scripture, what used to commonly be called the Old Testament, is about the story of God choosing and loving Israel. God creates the heavens and the earth, creates the animals and life and green things and people to fill it, and then not too long after that, in order to bring about God's plans for good for all of creation, God begins to show favor to some very interesting, specific, not entirely perfect people. We see a love develop in scripture for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for their children, for their wives, and God first makes a covenant with Abraham. And of Abraham, God promises to make a great nation, saying, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. And for many years, those descendants live in covenant with God, but it's a little rocky from time to time. It's a little up and down. So God gives a new codified covenant on Mount Sinai with Moses and the Ten Commandments, the giving of the law. We call this the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant that God makes with Israel through Moses. 
And for generations, we see this cycle repeat itself of faithfulness and falling away. Our text from Isaiah is tied to this cycle. It's in the part where God feels like God has been faithful and Israel has not. And what we see in this cycle over and over again is that Israel tries to live into the covenant they've made with God, and inevitably, because they're human, make mistakes, fall away, forget to honor God, forget to honor their neighbors, and then experience things like oppression and exile until something happens, a prophet arises, God acts, and the people remember, and they find faithfulness and righteousness and right relationship again. And they live in harmony with God and with each other for a time until the cycle repeats itself again. We find the beginnings of our story here too as Christians, as do many other people of faith. Somewhere in this beginning, in this crucible, is very much that is claimed by very many people. And what that should remind us of is how incredibly human all of this is, how so much of these stories resonate for us if we look carefully at them because we are all so alike, because we share so much. For example, this cycle of faithfulness and falling away is something that all of us experience on our faith journey. There are times, I hope, for all of us when we have an experience of God's closeness, of a desire for God, a love for God, that sense of joy and comfort and peace. And then life happens, and we get distracted. We experience a loss, or frankly, sometimes it's not set off by anything, but it's marked by the sense that God feels distant or far away. And then hopefully, something happens. God acts, and the cycle repeats again. And what we know about God, and what these texts continue to confirm for us, is that God is faithful even when we are not. God is present even when we fail to be. God is loving even when we fall short. And God always keeps God's end of the bargain even when we don't, because God is God. And God reminds us that a covenant is not a contract. There is no canceling it. There is no failing it. It's a relationship that is never broken. No matter what we do, God is always faithful on the other end of that deal. Because God is a loving and merciful God. Because our God is a God of good news, of good news for all people. In the gospel this morning, Jesus is quarreling with the high priests. And for once, I think the gospel is fairly clear about that. At the end, Jesus is quarreling with the priests and the religious elites, with the leadership of the Jewish people, not the people themselves. He says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. Now, surely you can see where that has led people astray, how that could have been used in harmful ways. Jesus is talking to the priests, to the leadership, to the elites, to the people who have been entrusted with power and privilege and leadership. He's not talking to the normal, average person. Nowhere in these texts does it say that God is ending God's covenant with Israel. In fact, even though both of these texts, Isaiah and Matthew, cite a dispute between God and Israel, both of them depend very, very much on the fact that God is still going to fulfill God's promises. So they might be fighting and there might be a dispute, but they assume within the text itself that the promises will still be fulfilled, and with our eyes, we believe they are in the gospel. 
hence the coming of the Messiah, the son who comes to see the tenants and is killed. Even though God is displeased with the leaders of Israel, still in this moment, the Messiah stands in front of them, promise fulfilled. So what this text is really about is the conflict between that Messiah and human religious leadership. What it is not is a commentary on the covenant between God and Israel, which is unshakable and irreplaceable. It doesn't change because God's promises don't change. In fact, I think they're the only thing in the world that doesn't change, that is steady and strong enough for us to rely on no matter what. So God's covenant is also alive and well with Israel. God's love and God's favor for the Jewish people is alive and well. And when we use scripture as it has been in the past to say that that is not true, we do a disservice to ourselves, to our siblings, and to the text itself. God's promises can never be broken. They never die and they never fade away. What we believe has happened as Christians and particularly as Episcopalians who embrace a loving posture for people of all faiths, our considered hope and opinion, our belief is that in Jesus, in the Messiah, God saw fit to make a new covenant with us, with those of us who weren't included in the Mosaic covenant. And Paul references that in his, in his writing this morning, right? We heard, we heard him basically say that I'm about as Jewish as they come. If we were going to translate that into modern language, that's kind of what he's saying. I am the most Jewish person you've ever met in your life, is what Paul is saying. And for him, even now, he finds that this covenant with Jesus is more important. That is his experience. And for us, we believe that it's a covenant that includes everyone and anyone, all of us, any of us, if we choose to follow Jesus, if we choose to make that rejected, failed cornerstone the very center of our lives, if we try to walk his way of love. This new covenant doesn't replace or outdo the first one. It's like they sort of sit next to each other, accomplishing God's purposes, attempting slowly through us to redeem creation, to bring everyone to salvation. It has always been the plan in scripture, as it has been slowly revealed to us, that God intended to redeem all of creation, and that the way in which that would happen is the Messiah coming out of Israel. And we believe that his name is Jesus. For us, this covenant comes with a different kind of law. The law that we hear about from Jesus in the gospel, the law that we hear Paul talk about in the epistle, it is different than the law of the Mosaic Covenant, but at its heart, it holds the same things to be true. It focuses on the same key things, and Jesus, of course, boils it down to two very specific things, love of God and love of neighbor. And so this morning, as we gather in this beautiful place, in the midst of a broken world, we are reminded again that if we would live into our covenant, if we would follow this Jesus of Nazareth, then we are called to build peace and justice. Okay. You might be sitting there saying, that's great, Marissa, I understand. Thanks for explaining that. But what does that have to do with me living into my covenant here in Wilton? 
How does that have anything to do with what's happening in that faraway place? And the answer, as you know, I suspect deep in your bones, is everything. Because when this covenant is our guide, when it is the signpost by which we live, when we seek to emulate him more than anyone else, it changes everything about us, which fundamentally changes everything about the world around us. Now, you and I, we may not be diplomats or the leaders of nation states. We may not be able to fix this conflict this morning or even, frankly, to begin to talk about it this morning. It would take us days. But we can actively contribute to the place that we live in now by not shying away from the hard conversations, by speaking the truth in love, by knowing that truth in our bones, that God loves all people, and that God has always wanted us to love each other, and that even now, as God grieves this violence in the world, that God is calling us to live that way, to love each other, to hear each other, and to try to build something that resembles justice and equality. That means that we have to be willing to put ourselves on the line we have to be willing to speak up, even in the midst of conversations among ourselves and with family and friends. It also means we have to know our history well enough that we can be an advocator instead of a bystander. That we're willing to come alongside those who are suffering, whoever they may be. And that we're willing to stay in it until the last weapon falls to the ground until every child is safe, until there is no more bloodshed, especially in the name of God. I struggled quite a bit with how we would end this time, and so what I've decided is that we will end this time together with the words of a Jewish liturgist and poet and theologian who comes from the Reformed tradition, and who is mindfully praying for everyone, for peace and well-being for everyone. So I'd invite you to close your eyes if you're comfortable, find yourself grounded, your feet on the floor, and pray with me. God of all, protector and redeemer, watch over the people of the Middle East, as their nations face struggle and strife in these lands and on these borders. Grant safety to their citizens and residents, visitors and guests during moments of unrest. Grant wisdom and courage to national leaders throughout the region. Grant insight to their advisors and understanding to their friends. Lead them on a path toward justice. Direct them on the road to freedom guide them on the way to prosperity. Make them all shining lights of peace. Source and shelter, grant safety and security to all nations so that harmony and blessings resound from the four corners of the earth. Blessed are you, God of all, forging nations and peoples in the crucible of change May this time of challenge for the nations of the Middle East become a blessing for all inhabitants and for the world. Amen.